Good morning. Let's get straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices. Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. Beyond the Valley. You know, this thing is going to go a lot, lot higher. I, I said recently I thought total market cap by the end of next year would be a trillion. You know, that's probably a little light. But if it's a trillion to two trillion, that's kind of 6x from where we are now. I could care less what Bitcoin trades for, how it trades, why it trades, who trades it. If you're stupid enough to buy it, you'll pay the price for it one day. If 1% of that $200 trillion finds its way into cryptocurrency in the next 10 years, you would be looking at a $2 trillion valuation that is 12 times what it is today, and it will drive the Bitcoin price above $50,000. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Valley. I'm Arjun Karpal in London. And I'm Saheli Roy Chowdhury in Singapore. Beyond the Valley is CNBC's new tech podcast that brings you the latest news and trends in technology outside the Silicon Valley. Right, today we're going to look at something that everyone's been talking about on the internet, the dinner table, or even down at your local pub, cryptocurrencies. Ever wonder what they are and how they work? How many cryptocurrencies are there? Can you substitute them for real money? It's a huge topic, and in today's episode, we're going to start at the top, Bitcoin, the largest cryptocurrency today by market value and the most well-known of the lot. Future episodes on this podcast will look at the broader crypto market, how you can get your hands on some crypto, how does the blockchain technology that underpins the cryptocurrencies work, and what regulators are thinking about. So right, let's set the scene then. Last year, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies hit record highs. Bitcoin was at the point at one point even worth over $19,000. But since then, the price has fallen dramatically and there's loads of debate around whether this is here to stay. And at the start of this podcast, you just heard responses from different sides of the debate. Ronnie Moas, extremely bullish on Bitcoin, while JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, not really the biggest fan. So let's dig into this. What is Bitcoin? What's the hype? And is it something you should be involved in? And joining us today, we have Dr. Garrick Hillman on the line. He's a researcher at the University of Cambridge and the London School of Economics. He's also co-founder of Mosaic.io, a new cryptocurrency data and research platform. Hi, Garrick. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. So um, to get this conversation started, let's, let's start at the basics. What is Bitcoin and why are people so interested in it? So Bitcoin is a digital alternative currency and it's worth unpacking that definition. So digital meaning it's not physical, it's not something you can touch like the banknotes and coins in our pockets. And by alternative currency, we mean that it's something that is not minted by a central government or a central bank. It's not uh, uh, legal tender. Uh, you can't really pay your taxes in most places with Bitcoin. It's, it's something that is created privately um, but has become a medium of exchange as well as a, a store of value. Okay, and um, and t tell us a bit about the technology that underpins Bitcoin. I mean, we keep hearing about this blockchain. So what is the blockchain? Right, so, so one of the things that makes Bitcoin special is that it's really the first decentralized digital alternative currency. And by decentralized, we mean that it, 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 the software that, that powers Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain software, is, is run on thousands of computers spread across all over the world. 
And it's this decentralized blockchain technology that really makes Bitcoin something quite special. There's no company that's in charge of Bitcoin. There's no central computer that is the master computer. Uh, it's, it's very decentralized. And so that has a number of uh, benefits. It makes it very resilient. Uh, Bitcoin has been operating for almost 10 years now, and it really hasn't suffered any um, downtime, unlike many other IT systems um, that, that you know, frequently uh, you know, fail and, 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 and cause trouble. So that decentralized blockchain technology helps, helps make the system very resilient. Um, it also makes it um, you know, difficult to regulate and, and, and shut down. Um, a, a few countries have actually banned Bitcoin, Bolivia and Ecuador, for example, um, but, but no one country can really, or even a collection of countries can really kind of shut Bitcoin down. So it's something that's it's quite, quite resilient and difficult to fully regulate. And that's all made possible by this decentralized blockchain technology. Derek, how does, how does Bitcoin work then in the sense that how can you buy it? And I mean, what? its purpose as well because i know you know we talk a lot about it as a cryptocurrency um i you know some some sort of exchange of value and and i know in in the original white paper by the mysterious founder satoshi nakamoto you know, he talked about it as this kind of global medium of exchange almost as well so so just unpack that idea a bit right so in terms of how, you know, how it works, uh, I, I like to compare it to email. Um, you know, I think most, most people have used email and understand that you know, to use email, you have to have uh, a few things. You have to have, of course, an email address. Uh, you have to have a, you know, uh, uh, an email client. You know, usually we, we log into our email through a web browser if you're using something like Gmail or, or using uh, an application like Microsoft Outlook. And, and you need a password, of course, that, that gives you access to that email uh, account. And, and Bitcoin is similar. It has all three of those same things, a Bitcoin address, um, the software uh, that you use to, to send Bitcoins and store Bitcoins is called wallet software. And then you have what's called a private key, which is basically your password. And just like with email, if someone gets a hold of your email password, they can, of course, go into your email account and send emails. Um, and, and some of us may... <laughs> who haven't secured our emails uh, accounts very very uh, very well may have suffered from one of these kind of hacks, right? Well, with Bitcoin, it's similar. If someone gets a hold of your, your private key, you know, they can, of course, run off with your Bitcoins. Um, so, so email, I think, is a helpful kind of analogous system to understanding kind of what the use of Bitcoin looks like. Um, and then, you know, with regards to it, you know, calling it a currency and, and, and how you can acquire it, um, so, so traditionally, you know, people have, uh, you know, sent money from their bank accounts to exchanges, to cryptocurrency exchanges. So, you know, here in the UK, you might send pounds to a local cryptocurrency exchange and you, you would convert that into Bitcoin. But it's not the easiest thing to do for many people. Not all banks uh, allow you to transfer, crypto, uh, you know, uh, national currencies uh, to, to cryptocurrency exchanges. Not all countries have cryptocurrency exchanges. So it's still something that's a little tricky for, for many people around the world to acquire. Uh, and, and Garrick, look, talk to me a little bit about it, its use as a currency then. Like, are we seeing Bitcoin being accepted in places? And of course, one of the big issues is the transaction time as well, right? Because this has been growing over the years as more people have come into the market and, and the, the supply of Bitcoin um, is, of course, limited as well. Right. 
So and this is a really, I think, important point you raise about, you know, its use as a currency and, and, you know, what it has been used for in the past and what it is used for predominantly today. So it really was uh, designed to, to be a currency uh, initially, and in its early use cases uh, famously were, you know, as a currency on, on the dark web, on websites such as the Silk Road, uh, on uh, gambling sites. Uh, and, and so its early traction really was as a currency. Uh, but as uh, people came to, to appreciate that Bitcoin and its underlying blockchain technology could be used for many, many things beyond currency, it could be used, for example, to, um, to, 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 to basically notarize and, and, and timestamp activity. Uh, it could be used for, for, for storage of, of records and so forth. Um, its, its role as a technology platform, I think, came to be appreciated. And, and people started to see Bitcoin really as something more than a currency, uh, as actually a really innovative technology. Uh, and, and, and speculative uh, uh, forces kind of took shape that really have drive, driven the price, I think, much, much higher um, as a result. And in fact, today, you'll hear oftentimes Bitcoin described as a crypto asset rather than a cryptocurrency. And I think this is a helpful term because it helps us think about um, Bitcoin as, as something that is, you know, used as a currency still today, for sure. Uh, but it's actually something that people are using as more of a kind of digital gold, if you will, uh, a store of value rather than a currency. And, and part of the reason is because Bitcoin as a currency is, is still, um, you know, uh, inconvenient in many ways. Transaction fees are quite high. In December, they were as high as $35 per transaction. I mean, if you're trying to buy a cup of coffee that only costs a few dollars, uh, paying a $35 transaction fee makes absolutely no sense. Um, transaction speeds can be quite, quite slow still. Um, there are uh, technologies that are coming online, like the Lightning Network, that will address both fees and speed. Um, but still, as a currency, Bitcoin leaves quite a bit to, to be desired. And, Garrick, let me just jump in there and ask, because, you know, we are talking about Bitcoin's viability as a form of currency, uh, that, that you know people can use for to, to maybe buy like a cup of coffee or something like that. But you know, as Arjun mentioned uh, earlier in this podcast, um, last year Bitcoin prices hit like an all-time high of nineteen thousand dollars, and then it fell. And now, and it's it um, basically my point is it fluctuates a lot the the price of Bitcoin. Do you think that is sort of a deterrent in terms of anyone trying to use it as a form of currency because you know today the value of the number of bitcoins i own may not be the same as it is tomorrow or the day after so can you can you share your thoughts a bit on that yes i i completely agree with your point that you know uh something uh that that is so volatile uh that raises real problems for its use as a currency in many many kind of settings so for example if you wanted to to pay your rent at the end of the month, um, and, and the value of your Bitcoin holdings, which you were counting on to pay your rent, dropped by 50%, you'd be in real trouble. You wouldn't be able to make your rent payment necessarily. Uh, so something that's more stable um, uh, is, is probably a better, better uh, place to store um, you know, mandatory payments uh, like, like rent and, and, and so on. And, 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 and so this has actually led to another kind of technological advance still very early days, but we're, we're seeing uh, what are called stable coins being introduced. Uh, these are cryptocurrencies that actually are designed to be stable relative to the US dollar, relative to inflation. And these are um, you know, still largely untested, 
Um, some of them are asset-backed and are just holding U.S. dollars kind of in reserve. Others actually are more algorithmic and are trying to actually kind of uh, programmatically balance uh, the supply with the demand to achieve a stable exchange rate. So it's going to be interesting to, to see these stable coins, I think, in the coming months and years develop and whether that helps address one of these big issues uh, with Bitcoin, its volatility, which undermines its use as a currency in many, in many scenarios. Last year was uh, pretty much considered a banner year for Bitcoin because of how much the currency actually rose in value. So I was wondering, like, what do you think drove that valuation? I mean, like, what drove the prices to go up as high as like $19,000? Right. So, yeah, Bitcoin is no longer uh, the only game in town in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, traditionally, Bitcoin, you know, three, four years ago represented you know, 90% of the value roughly of all the cryptocurrencies. There's been, you know, many other cryptocurrencies for quite some time now. Um, some people may be familiar with Litecoin or Dogecoin, which have been around for a number of years. Ethereum, uh, you know, is, a, is, a, is the number two cryptocurrency. Um, but last year we saw really, a, you know, a lot of growth in the whole ecosystem. And this was really driven by Ethereum and Ethereum as a platform for what are called initial coin offerings. And these are new cryptocurrency platforms that are being launched off of Ethereum. And so the whole sector really kind of grew and Bitcoin grew along with it. Um, but today, Bitcoin represents about, you know, 40 percent roughly of, uh, uh, you know, in terms of value of the total ecosystem. Um, but it's still the key currency. It still, um, you know, has the most kind of currency pairs with with the other cryptocurrencies. Um, and, and so a rising tide and all this interest in initial coin offerings certainly lifted Bitcoin's boat. Um, so that was one part of it. And then I think, you know, undoubtedly, there's a bit of a there was a bit of a speculative frenzy as the price starts going up. People have what you know is, is now referred to as kind of a fear of missing out. Uh, they jump on the bandwagon. That fuels more people jumping on the bandwagon. The media gets interested uh, and has this kind of like you know upward spiral. And I think it was clear that that was unsustainable and had really uh, outpaced kind of where traction and adoption really were. Um, you know where the fundamentals were last year. And, and not surprisingly, prices uh, corrected in the in, in the in the early part of this year significantly. Garrick, you spoke a, a little bit about value and, and and valuation. You also talked about fundamentals there. How, how is Bitcoin being valued at the moment? And and actually, are there fundamentals to something that is, of course, digital? It's a great question, and it's something that I think we're in the very early days of trying to to to, to learn how to properly value these crypto assets. Uh, there's been a number of, uh, you know, metrics that have been put forward, uh, some rather simplistic ones, like, you know, people speculating that, you know, Bitcoin as digital gold might, um, you know, come to, say, uh, replace, say, 10% of, of, say, the role of, of, of gold. And if you look at gold and say, okay, well, gold's about a, you know, an $8 trillion asset class, uh, that would put Bitcoin maybe at a value of around $800 billion, you know, if you, if you think that 10% of people will, will shift to, to Bitcoin. And, and, and so, you know, there's simplistic approaches like that. Uh, there's more sophisticated approaches that are being developed, looking at like the transaction volume uh, of Bitcoin versus its network value um, and so forth. But I would say it's still very early days and none of these valuation methods are, are really time tested or, or what I would consider robust. In fact, a big problem 
which Mosaic is trying to address here is the lack of reliable data that can be used to develop uh, you know, robust valuation methodologies. I think without this really high quality data, uh, which is quite scarce today in the crypto asset space, it's difficult to develop um, good models to develop the theories for how to, to how to value crypto assets. And, you know, and just like in the early internet days when, when we had companies like Amazon and eBay, you know, and their prices going up, there was a lot of uncertainty around how to value those types of companies. New platforms often trigger uncertainty around valuation. In fact, you know, if you go way back <laughs> into history and, and go to the time of the invention of joint stock companies several hundred years ago, it took a couple hundred years for, for discounted cash flow methodologies to be developed uh, that, that we use today to value companies. So um, I do feel we will get there. I think that we will develop good valuation methodologies for crypto assets, but it's, it's still very early days. When you look at uh, Bitcoin and the, the way it is often likened, as you said, to, to a digital gold, you know, gold often has been seen as, as something with long term term value. It's something that you invest in in a time of flux, perhaps. Uh, when markets are going haywire, when you look at Bitcoin, some people have said, some some commentators said, actually, you know, the value of Bitcoin zero, this is something that won't survive in the long term. Blockchain, of course, will. But given Bitcoin's first mover advantage, as you said as well, the way that there's a lot of currency, uh, cryptocurrency crosses with Bitcoin, is this something that you see lasting for a long time? Well, I think Bitcoin's in a very strong position, but it's it's not an unassailable position uh, by any means. I think the fact that the its market value share has dropped from 90, 80 percent down to 40 percent, um, you know, and it fluctuates. It can go down to 30, it can go back up to 50 or 60, but it's 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 dropped, you know, has really opened the door, I think, for other crypto assets, cryptocurrencies to compete with Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, it still has a, you know, a first mover advantage, a network effect advantage. Uh, it's you know the most widely used, widely supported uh, cryptocurrency, but but it's uh, you know been plagued by some some challenges, right? A lot of infighting around how to um, evolve the technology. Uh, there was a three-year debate over scaling the, the the protocol and how to allow for more transactions. Bitcoin has been uh, oftentimes clogged up, you know, not enough uh, space on the on the network really to to efficiently process transactions. It only can process roughly seven transactions per second today versus, you know, visas uh, and MasterCards, you know, tens of thousands. So uh, the idea that Bitcoin could compete with uh, a payment network like Visa or MasterCard just isn't really realistic today. Um, but the three-year debate about, you know, which way to, to go in terms of scaling the platform, you know, I think opened up um, room for, for competitors to come in. And so, you know, if, if you know, more evolution is required and, and Bitcoin's governance structure doesn't uh, facilitate uh, the evolution of that technology, you know, I mean, Bitcoin could could fall further. Garrick, look, you, you've given us uh, a story about, you know, there is there's extreme volatility at times. There are incredibly expensive transaction fees. They're very high. Um, there's been fighting within people, you know, who maintain this Bitcoin network, which, of course, is not centralized. I think there's a lot, a lot of people uh, and listeners wondering right now, what is the point of Bitcoin? Fair question. Uh, so when it was created, you know, it offered a number of novel kind of characteristics, and it still does. Um, you know, let's start with, you know, something as simple as how many decimal places Bitcoin features. So Bitcoin has eight decimal places. Um, you know, most currencies only offer two. Um, 
that in theory allows for micropayments, um, transactions with very, very small fractions of value, far less than a penny, um, that, that, that you, couldn't, you can't make with, with traditional currencies. Um, now, obviously, if fees are going up, uh, that makes micropayments micro prohibitively expensive. Um, but there you know, are other cryptocurrencies that you can use effectively for free that offer a similar number of decimal places. Um, so microtransactions are something that, that you know, is possible with, with cryptocurrency. The governance challenges we talked about uh, that have stalled kind of technological, technological development are, by, are seen by some as actually a strength, the fact that it's not very easy to tamper with the protocol to change things uh, about Bitcoin. In fact, many people think Bitcoin shouldn't be changed whatsoever, that it's perfectly fine as is. And, and that gives it a resiliency that, that people can trust, that it's not going to be tampered with, that the 21 million uh, supply limit, the scarcity of Bitcoin, will be, will be maintained. So that scarcity, I think, is something that, in Bitcoin's case, is, is certainly very attractive. Um, you know, the fact that it can be used to uh, you know, offer degrees of privacy is another feature that, that some people find quite compelling. Now, this can be you know, a, a negative thing from society's perspective, right? The, you know, using Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies to break laws, to, to engage in illegal activity. But at the same time, privacy is something that, you know, sometimes is something we want to encourage. Uh, you know, if you're a dissident in, a, in an oppressive regime, you might be able to conduct transactions. If you're in Venezuela today um, and, 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 you know, like watching your, your, your wealth be liquidated due to high inflation, you know, Bitcoin is one of the ways in which you could actually try to, try to help your family and preserve, preserve your wealth. Gary, um, just to sort of go off on a tangent for a bit, we talked about Bitcoin. We know that it is the largest cryptocurrency by market value and perhaps the most popular one right now, uh, second only to maybe Ethereum. But in the cryptocurrency space, there are thousands of new cryptocurrencies today, right? Uh, I mean, uh, you, you have you mentioned a couple of them, Litecoin, Dogecoin, then of course, there are many, many more out there. So if, if a potential per investor were to look at the cryptocurrency market, how do you think they should like go about trying to even determine which, which um, alternate coin or cryptocurrency is you know, worth looking at, worth investing, or just, you know, because there are so many of them, market is not regulated, and information comes from all different sources. So can you take us through that? Like, what would be the best way to look at the cryptocurrency space as a whole? It's a great question, and, and that question is actually the whole, you know, a big part of the reason behind the creation of Mosaic. Uh, to create a, a more reliable data and research platform. But let me start by saying, I think some of the most sophisticated um, token holders today would be hard pressed to explain to you in a rigorous manner what they think any of these cryptocurrencies really are worth. Um, they're really relying on uh, measures of market momentum and, and, and you know, maybe their, their judgment of the, the quality of the teams that are running the projects. Um, and and the, the market size, you know, that, that the particular cryptocurrency is trying to address. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that, you know, even the smartest people in the space, I think, have a hard time trying to answer. And it's a, it's a you know, a difficult question for a number of reasons. First, we just don't have a lot of data on many of these uh, crypto assets. And what data is out there is, is often unreliable. Let's just take exchange, exchange trading volume data, for example. 
Um, this data is, is self-reported by many exchanges, many of which are not regulated. And uh, we know that some of this data is, is, is you know, fraudulent or is manipulated to try to inflate um, how much you know, volume appears to be uh, occurring on, on some of these exchanges. This is one of the, the issues that has caused, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission to be hesitant about approving a, a Bitcoin ETF. The fact that you know there's you know you know likely misinformation and even market manipulation going on in many markets around the world to make knowing you know is the price of Bitcoin you know real uh, or is it being tampered with um, you know we we uh, with with a lot of the crypto assets that have been created the newer ones as you mentioned you know these projects are so early stage that the networks aren't even live yet we don't have any data on user traction uh, we don't have a lot of insights into insider holdings. Um, you know, it's, it's really, you know, quite speculative to get involved in investing in, in many of these assets, particularly ones that are brand new and, and haven't even launched yet. So it's a huge problem. It's a huge question. And it's really at the heart of uh, a big part of what we're trying to do with Mosaic, which is create, you know, a reliable data platform that allows hundreds of contributors, uh, research contributors to, to put their ideas forward and to, in a reliable way, uh, monitor who's getting some calls right and who's you know, uh, not 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 um, producing you know good research over time. Eric, another point here, uh, you know, want to look at is you mentioned regulation. You mentioned kind of the numerous altcoins. Of course, one thing we haven't spoken about is this whole wave of initial coin offerings. I mean, there's a lot happening in this cryptocurrency space. So, just want you to look into your crystal ball and and just tell us how this year proceeds. What happens with all these digital offerings, these digital coins, what happens in the space as we progress over the next couple of years? Great, great question. So I think, you know, the data we have suggests that, you know, growth in users has slowed down here in 2018 compared to, to last year, where we saw some exchanges adding 100,000 people a day. Uh, that's, that's not happening uh, as, as much as it was uh, last year. We're, we're still in the process of kind of, you know, getting an updated kind of total unique number of users uh, for the space, you know, it's estimated roughly at between 15 and 30 million as of today, compared to five to 10 million last year. Um, but but use does appear to be growing. Um, so so as use grows, it's you know it's possible that you know value will grow as well. But there's a lot of uh, uncertainty around uh, regulation still. I, I think we're waiting all we're all waiting to see how the Securities and Exchange Commission and other regulators uh, rule about the nature of initial coin offerings and and are um, you know major projects like Ethereum, the number two cryptocurrency, um, where they where they you know illegally sold securities when 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 Ethereum was was uh, you know um, did its ICO back in 2014, for example. Ripple, the number three, is is also it's also been argued is is a security as well. And what are the implications of having some of the major um, projects, uh, not to mention all the other ICOs? Uh, classified as securities. That's a huge question mark that could, um, you know, uh, have a big impact on valuation and, and adoption. Um, so that's one big kind of question hanging, hanging kind of out there. Um, in terms of uh, other types of regulation, it appears central banks, for example, are not uh, looking at the space as systemically important yet. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, we're not expecting any kind of central bank regulation, but I think also um, other regulators, of course, are, are getting quite interested in the space. Tax authorities, for example, um, are looking at the appreciation and, and wanting to regulate the space. And 
there's a question I think around, you know, what happens when cryptocurrency and crypto assets become kind of regulated financial instruments, how much of, of the advantage they, they, they offer, how much of the cost advantage, the efficiencies that they offer, for example, how much of that goes away. So big, big question marks. At the same time, there's really exciting kind of technological advances occurring. Earlier, I mentioned the Lightning Network. I think it's worth just briefly touching on that. This is a kind of a, an overlay network that's going to allow for much faster throughput of Bitcoin transactions at much lower costs and could make things like buying you know, the proverbial cup of coffee with Bitcoin actually practical. So the technology continues to advance. Regulators are, are still trying to figure the space out, looking at things like decentralized exchanges and stable coins and other, other developments. And uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about where this still could go. Garrick, that was, that was a great overview. I think you know, a lot of people will be listening to this thinking and hopefully thinking that they've got a, a better understanding of this whole cryptocurrency world. But I mean, it's moving at such a rapid pace that I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again in, in a few weeks. Um, Garrick, thanks so much for joining us, running us through your thoughts and, and helping us learn a little bit more about the space. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was Garrick Harmon on the line there. He's a researcher at the University of Cambridge and the London School of Economics and the co-founder of Mosaic.io, a new cryptocurrency data and research platform. Certainly a lot to think about there. I've been talking a lot over the past uh, few months on air here at CNBC about how 2018 could be the year of regulation for cryptocurrency. So that's going to be a key development. And as Garrick told us about some of the new technology being implemented onto the network as well as some of the new projects. So exciting year, I think, Sally. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, to your point that you said about regulation, because the year started off with a bit of a, uh, I mean, bit of a meltdown after, you know, there were reports about South Korea potentially banning um, cryptocurrencies, but then they went back on that. And now, um, you know, now regulators are looking at this market more closely. But you know the thing with regulation i always feel is that you there's always need there there's always a need to strike a balance like you don't want to especially for a new market like like this or a new technology like this you don't want to go too heavy-handed because that just stifles innovation but at the same time you know these are essentially people investing their pretty much their life savings into a very into what essentially looks like a very volatile market so, I mean, I, I personally don't think that the regulators have an easy job here. What do you think? Yeah, not an easy job. Have to be very careful. I think you speak to the regulators. We've spoken to them over the past few months, and they're always saying, you know, we have to walk that fine line between, you know, allowing innovation to happen, but not allowing consumers to get hurt. So that's going to be a key consideration. But I'll tell you what, my favorite thing, I think, about the whole of the booming in cryptocurrencies and some of the, the air coming out of the market has been the fights between the big business people of the world. JB Diamond, you know, saying it's a fraud at one point, then later backtracking on some of his comments. He had Warren Buffett as well saying Bitcoin's going to go to zero. So I'm hoping we're going to have a few more of those big clashes this year amongst the debate. It all adds to the fun of cryptocurrencies. Right. I think that concludes another episode of Beyond the Valley here. We've been talking about cryptocurrencies, plenty more topics for you to check out uh, of our series called Beyond the Valley, where we're looking at some of the biggest technology stories across the world. I'm Arjun Kapil in London. And I'm Saheli Roy Chowdhury in Singapore. Singapore.